All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 56 for November 2023. Philadelphia and Oil. National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. We usually don't think of Philadelphia as an oil center, but the Point Breeze refinery at the junction of the Schuylkill and Delaware rivers processed well over a billion barrels of oil during its lifetime. Fires and explosions were a constant threat, and dozens of people lost their lives when something went wrong. Pugh family patriarch Joseph Newton Pugh founded Sun Oil in 1890, then followed with a refinery in Marcus Hook and the Sun Shipbuilding Company in Chester. Newton's three sons were groomed to take over the business, while two nephews and a grandson also helped turn Sun into a major player in the world of oil drilling and refining. In this podcast, you're going to learn where oil comes from, how it is refined, and what happened at Point Breeze, as well as learn how the Pew brothers, Howard and Joe, became supporters of several political causes, some of them a bit shady, but how the philanthropy of the Pew family has helped make Philadelphia the world-class city that it is today. All this and a lot more on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 56, Philadelphia and Oil. The word petroleum comes from the medieval Latin word for rock oil. Petra means rock in both Latin and Greek. Think of petroglyphs, ancient images carved into rocks as works of art. Or the ancient Jordanian city of Petra, which is literally carved out of rock. Oleum is from the Greek. It means oil. Think linoleum. 
Mausoleum, or rather Mausoleum, on the other hand, is named for the massive grave of King Mausolus of Caria at Halicarnassus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It has nothing to do with the oleum of oil. Nowadays, the word petroleum is interchangeable with the term crude oil and the liquid forms of hydrocarbons. Petroleum is derived from fossilized organic material, like zooplankton, single-celled protozoans, multi-celled metazoans, and phytoplankton, like algae, which live near the surface of water, where there is enough light to support photosynthesis. Plankton can range in size from less than 0.2 micrometers, that's the femtoplankton-sized marine viruses, up to megaplankton of more than 20 centimeters, like jellyfish. Although some plankton can move vertically in water or air, plankton cannot propel themselves horizontally against a current or a wind. They are subject to movement depending on the surrounding currents. Marine plankton are comprised of more than 50% protein. They've got 5 to 25% lipids and not more than 40% carbohydrates. Millions of years ago, massive volumes of these remains settled to seabeds or lake bottoms where the water had no dissolved oxygen or they were covered with sediments such as mud and silt before they could decompose aerobically. A few feet below this sediment, water oxygen concentration was near zero, that is, stagnant water, and temperatures remain constant. But as more layers settled into the sea or lake bed, heat and pressure built up in the lower regions. This caused the organic matter to change. First, into a waxy material known as kerogen. Kerogen is found in various oil shales around the world. Kerogen, which derives from the Greek wax birth, is estimated to contain 10 to the 16th tons of carbon. That makes it the most abundant source of organic compounds on earth. It exceeds, kerogen exceeds the total organic content of living matter estimated at 10 to the 12th tons by a factor of 10,000. Now, as more heat develops, catagenesis converts kerogen into liquid and gaseous hydrocarbons in what we would now call cracking. The Latin cata, as in catagenesis, means downward or against, catapult, cataclysm, catastrophe, catatonia. One of my favorite words, catawampus. Genesis, of course, means beginning. Now think of temperature as thermal vibration. At high temperatures, excessive vibration causes long-chain molecules to break into smaller molecules, or crack, or fractionate. Petroleum occurs from hydrocarbon pyrolysis, heat separation in a variety of mainly endothermic reactions at high temperatures or pressures or both. Do you remember endothermy? When bonds break and form during various processes, there's usually an exchange of energy. If the energy of the forming bonds is greater than the energy of the breaking bonds, then energy is released in an exothermic reaction. But 
if more energy is needed to break the bonds than the energy being released, it is an endothermic reaction. Petroleum formation, then, requires a specific window of conditions. If it is too hot, the result favors smaller hydrocarbons, like natural gas. If it's too cold, plankton remains trapped as kerogen and never even changes to petroleum. Coal formation is similar to this, but it usually occurs on land or marshy areas rather than in seabeds like petroleum. Now, petroleum has been known since prehistoric times. The Chinese used it for fuel as early as 4th century BCE. Persian chemists learned to distill petroleum into many individual products. And the streets of early Baghdad were paved with tar that was derived from local petroleum sources. On this continent, sophisticated oil pits 15 to 20 feet deep were dug by the Seneca people and other Iroquois in western Pennsylvania as early as the first half of the 15th century. The French general, Louis-Joseph de Montcalm, encountered Seneca using petroleum for ceremonial fires and as a healing lotion during his visit to Fort Duquesne, now Pittsburgh, in 1750. The petroleum was gathered from oil seeps, where flammable material spontaneously escaped the earth as either gas or oil. A tiny town named Titusville in Crawford County in the northwest corner of Pennsylvania is where the oil industry was born in the United States in 1859. Business partners George Bissell and Edwin L. Drake investigated rock oil on the shores of Oil Creek, a tributary of the Allegheny River. They sent some to a chemist friend who told them that their gooey material could be fractionated into smaller, more useful parts. They started drilling for oil. Word got out quickly, and the oil boom that followed drew speculators, much as the gold rush had drawn fortune seekers to California ten years earlier. High overland shipping costs caused many well owners to float their product down Oil Creek to the Allegheny River, just as lumber producers did. They used skiffs. These are small boats. They could carry between 700 and 800 barrels of crude downstream. But an estimated one-third of the crude oil leaked out of the skiffs before they were even launched. Another third was lost by the time the skiffs reached Pittsburgh. And 40% of the skiffs were destroyed en route due to collisions with rocks, fallen trees, or each other. In 1862, the Oil Creek Railroad Company completed a line that connected Titusville to the Philadelphia and Erie Railroad. Remember, this is only 30 years after the Philadelphia and Columbia Railroad that I talked about at Duffy's Cut in Biographical Bites from Ballon Number 21. Now, by this time, the proliferation of wells across the Oil Creek Valley had produced an oversupply, and this drove the price of oil down from $10 a barrel to $0.10 cents a barrel. And despite the massive wastage, by 1871, refining capacity had grown to more than 12 million barrels per year. 
only when John D. Rockefeller of nearby Ohio established Standard Oil and began to consolidate holdings over the region's wells and refineries did the oil rush start to slow down. Pennsylvania oil production peaked in 1891 when the state produced 31 million barrels of oil. That was about three-fifths of the nation's supply. By 1895, Ohio surpassed Pennsylvania as an oil producer. And by 1907, with the discovery of vast oil reserves under Texas, Oklahoma, and California, Pennsylvania supplied less than 10% of the country's oil. So just how big is a barrel? Well, fluid barrels vary depending on what's being measured. In the U.S., most fluid barrels, apart from oil, are 31 and a half gallons, or 119 liters. But a beer barrel is 31 gallons, or 117 liters. Whiskey was shipped and stored in 40-gallon barrels. An oil barrel was defined as 42 U.S. gallons, or 160 liters, in 1872. Of course, since oil is a thick liquid, its volume is dependent on temperatures and pressures. As I mentioned before, one of the ways for Drake and other speculators to get their oil from northwest Pennsylvania to the ocean, hundreds of miles away, was by the rivers and the railroads, that went east to the Schuylkill River, then down to the Delaware River, which drains into the Atlantic Ocean. When they came down the Schuylkill, boats would pass the Point Breeze area of Philadelphia. This area of about 1,400 acres had been a major Lenape settlement and used for hay farming. After the 1854 consolidation, Point Breeze was comprised of small colonial settlements and farms among marshes and wet meadows. Most of the east bank of the Schuylkill River was tidal mudflat, except for a section called the Passiunk Bank, which sat about 20 feet above the river and became an attractive location for early shipping and industrial facilities. Petroleum was not America's first fossil fuel industry. In 1835, the city of Philadelphia chartered a private gas company to manufacture gas from coal and distribute it. The first plant was on the north side of Market Street, near the Schuylkill River. But a second plant went into operation at Point Breeze in 1854, the year of consolidation. The story of Philadelphia Gas Works is a completely different podcast. <laughs> we'll get to that eventually, but it's another large story. In 1866, three Pittsburgh entrepreneurs, Charles Lockhart, William Frew, and William G. Warden, moved to Philadelphia and formed the Atlantic Petroleum Storage Company. Lockhart is interred in the Pencoid section of Laurel Hill West, and Warden is in a mausoleum in the Ashland section. They purchased the Point Breeze property on the east side of the Schuylkill along Passiunk Bank. They built tanks to store both crude and refined products coming in from Pittsburgh. They quickly realized they could improve their profits by doing their own refining in Philadelphia. But what exactly are they refining? A thick, gooey mess of hydrocarbon molecules of all sizes. 
Hydrocarbon molecules with one to four carbon atoms are gaseous at ambient temperatures. Methane, CH4. Ethane, C2H6. Propane, C3H8. Butane, C4H10. Although propane and butane are in a gaseous form at standard temperature and pressure, they easily compress to a transportable liquid. The more hydrocarbon molecules, the higher the boiling points, and the greater the viscosity or the stickiness. Also, the more carbon atoms there are, the more isomers are possible. Isomers are molecules with identical molecular formulas, but different arrangements of atoms in space. For instance, pentane, which has a chemical formula of C5H12, is a liquid that has three isomers, pentane, isopentane, and neopentane. Higher on this spectrum is decane, C10H22. It has 75 structural isomers. And dodecane, C12H26, has 355 structural isomers. Hydrocarbon molecules with more than 25 or 30 carbon atoms are so thick that they are barely liquid at all. They must be heated simply to flow. The largest molecules are asphalt or bitumen, also known as tar. Some of the heavier hydrocarbons have isomers numbering in the millions. All of these different hydrocarbons come mixed together in crude oil and they have to be separated. What happens at a refinery is primarily a distillation process. Distillation is the process of separating various components or substances from a liquid mixture by using selective boiling and condensation in an apparatus called a distiller or a still. Distillation was known to the Babylonians of ancient Mesopotamia. In Greece, Aristotle knew that water which condensed from evaporation of seawater was fresh and potable. Distillation uses the different boiling points of the hydrocarbons to evaporate them and then recondenses them again at different temperatures. This separates them into useful fractions. For example, hydrocarbons with between 5 and 12 carbon atoms are said to be in the gasoline range. Hydrocarbons with between 8 and 16 carbon atoms are said to be in the kerosene range. The term kerosene comes from the same root as kerogen, wax or waxing. Larger hydrocarbon molecules are used for lubricants, furnace fuels, and asphalt, among other uses. The name diesel fuel, also called heavy oil, comes not from the Greek or the Roman, but from the German scientist and inventor Rudolf Diesel, who built the first diesel engine in 1892. Petroleum diesel is a mixture of carbon chains that contain between 9 and 25 carbon atoms per molecule. Diesel is different in that it can be produced from any carbonaceous material, including biomass, biogas, natural gas, coal, and other raw materials. In the United States, diesel is stored in a yellow container to distinguish it from kerosene, which should be kept in a blue container, and gasoline, 
which should be kept in a red container. Octane C8H18 with 18 structural isomers and six stereoisomers is used colloquially as a short form of octane rating, an index of the fuel's ability to resist engine knock in engines that have different compression ratios. It is not true that using gasoline of a higher octane than an engine is designed for can increase power output. Since the mid-1940s, the compound adjective high octane has been used as an intensifier to mean powerful or dynamic. In the early days of the Atlantic refinery, which eventually occupied more than 1.6% of the land in Philadelphia, it mostly processed crude oil to recover the kerosene, which gradually replaced whale oil for illumination. The more volatile fractions, including gasoline, were considered waste. They were usually burnt off or worse, dumped into the nearest river before it was discovered that these products could be used for power and heat. And as internal combustion engines were developed in the late 19th century, gasoline became more valuable. Those tall towers that you see when you drive past a refinery are the distilleries or the stills. Crude oil is heated in a large furnace and fed into the still as vapor. The lightest hydrocarbons, butane and propane, rise to the top and are collected. Heavier hydrocarbons are captured at lower levels in the still. Light distillates near the top, like liquefied petroleum gas, gasoline, naphtha, followed by middle distillates, kerosene, diesel, jet fuel, fuel oil, heavy distillates, lubricating oil, heavy fuel oil, and at the very bottom, paraffin wax and asphalt. Many industries have been built up over these so-called waste byproducts, and more than 6,000 items are currently made from them, including fertilizer, floor coverings, perfume, insecticide, petroleum jelly, soap, vitamin capsules, and so on. By 1871, John D. Rockefeller owned nearly all the refineries in Cleveland, which gave him control of about one-fourth of the nation's refining capacity. He next set his sights on the Pittsburgh and Philadelphia refineries, which controlled another quarter of refining capacity. In 1874, Lockhart and Warden sold their operation to Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company in exchange for Standard Oil stock. By 1907, Warden owned 5,800 shares of Standard Oil. Each was worth about $400. This was certainly far less than John D. Rockefeller's 248,000 shares, but still a sizable amount. By 1879, Rockefeller and Standard Oil Trust controlled more than 90% of the nation's refining capacity. Now, the Atlantic Refining Company was a distinct corporate entity within the Standard Oil Trust, and it acquired the Philadelphia Refining Company's business on the north side of the Philadelphia Gas Works in 1878. The north yard came to specialize in the heavy products, while the south yard treated light fuels. 
Further improvements made at Point Breeze led to a process of continuous distillation in which a series of connected stills brought the oil to successively higher temperatures, each still evaporating a different fraction of the hydrocarbons. William M. Irish, whom Rockefeller brought in from Ohio, developed a tower distillery in 1904. Most of the crude oil could now be vaporized and passed through various condensers which distilled different fractions of hydrocarbons. Irish is interred at Laurel Hill West in the Moreland section. The Sherman Antitrust Act led to the breakup of Standard Oil in 1911 when it was selling more than 80% of kerosene used in the nation and supplied more than 90% of the lubricating oils to U.S. railroads. Atlantic, again, became an independent corporation, but it no longer had the steady stream of crude that Standard had supplied it. Now it had to bid against other refineries, also made independent by the breakup. And now 80% of its Point Breeze products went to overseas markets. In 1926, the Gulf Oil Corporation opened its refinery at Girard Point, contiguous to Point Breeze. Sunoco acquired both plants in 1988 and 1994. I'll talk more about Sunoco and Sun Oil in the next section of the podcast. Over the past two centuries, humans have developed a huge dependence on petroleum, and they've recognized the two-faced nature of the product from the beginning. Thanks to gasoline and the internal combustion engine, relatively long-distance and high-speed personal mobility has become almost effortless. But fossil fuel waste produces air pollution, which causes more than 3 million deaths per year and is one of the top contributors to human death. And collection, transportation, and processing of fossil fuels can cause other forms of pollution of both land and water, not to mention the occasional catastrophe at refineries where dozens of people can be killed. In 1884, the ground in and around Point Breeze had absorbed so much petroleum product that the groundwater supply in the neighborhood was unfit for consumption. The Philadelphia Gas Works built a 10-inch water line along Passionk Avenue from Broad Street to Schuylkill Avenue along the river to supply good water to the Point Breeze area. After it was built, they gave it to the Philadelphia Water Works. Local newspapers frequently reported fires, explosions, multiple injuries, or deaths at the refineries. For instance, in 1879, lightning sparked a catastrophic fire at Point Breeze on the 11th of June. The blaze destroyed 25,000 cases of petroleum stored at Atlantic's Schuylkill River docks, as well as five foreign ships. Six other ships were towed away before they ignited. This fire destroyed virtually every structure at the works, including the office and the superintendent's house, the cooperage, the tin shop, which made cans for shipping oil, and the refining equipment. It was fueled by oil that had saturated the ground, and it continued to burn long into the night. And then two days later, 
lingering flames from one of the burning ships at the wharf spread under increasing winds to more of the oil company's waterfront property. About a half mile of Philadelphia's waterfront was totally destroyed. Amazingly, firemen, sailors, workmen, and nearby residents escaped injury. But an estimated 2,000 men were thrown out of employment, and most sailors lost all their belongings, and some houses were destroyed. In 1921, there were two major incidents only a month apart. Early in the morning, Sunday, 14th of August, 1921, an explosion and fire killed four and seriously injured ten, and destroyed everything in a three-acre area of the refinery. One month later, Wednesday, 14 September, 1921, 11 men were killed instantly, seven more died from burns, and scores of others were injured when the naphtha still exploded. Quoting from an article on the front page of the Inquirer, The body of one of the victims was brought down from the top of the tower structure five hours after the explosion, only after firemen had constructed a special scaffold to reach him. All that was left of it was in a kneeling position, and it was evident that the man met his death in prayer, his hands over his face in the vain effort to protect his eyes. As far as I can determine, none of these victims were buried at Laurel Hill. Other incidents. 1931, 12 September. Four killed, nine injured, in a blast at the Atlantic refining plant at Point Breeze. 1960, 10 September. The Girard Point refinery, which was then owned by Gulf, a lightning-induced fire burned for hours, but there were no injuries. 1970, 11 May. A 13-story unit exploded at the Arco plant, killing seven employees and injuring 37. 1975, 17 August. The refinery caught fire due to overfill of an oil storage tank. Flames killed six firefighters on the scene, and by the time the fire was extinguished two days later, Two more firefighters had died. This explosion has been called one of the worst disasters in Philadelphia Fire Department history. And less than two months later, on 12 October 1975, refinery fire involved more than 200 firefighters, but no deaths occurred. In fact, the only major injury reported was to Mayor Frank Rizzo. He was standing 13 blocks away on Passyunk Avenue, when an explosion set a wall of heat to him and his party and caused them to instinctively bolt from the source. The six foot two, two hundred fifty pound mare collided with his six foot eight, two hundred sixty pound bodyguard and crashed to the ground. The newspapers reported that he suffered a broken femur. For my medical friends, it was a garden variety right intertrochanteric hip fracture. After surgery at Hahnemann Hospital, the 54-year-old Rizzo had complete recovery. And if you've been in Philadelphia for only a short period of time, you will recall the near catastrophe in 2019, on 21 June. A fire and multiple explosions occurred at the refinery. Now it was owned by Philadelphia Energy Solutions. The South Philadelphia complex at that time 
consisted of the Point Breeze and contiguous Girard Point refineries, a tank farm on the west bank of the Schuylkill, and the North Yard Rail and Storage Facility. There was a release of hydrocarbons and hydrofluoric acid in the refinery's alkylation unit that caused a ground-hugging vapor cloud, which rapidly ignited and led to three separate explosions only minutes apart. These explosions and the enormous fire alarmed people all over the city. The largest explosion sent a vessel fragment flying 2,000 feet across the Schuylkill River. The fireball was so large and so hot that it could be seen from space in satellite infrared images. Luckily, only five employees sustained minor injuries. But in what could have been a major catastrophe, especially with the hydrofluoric acid release, there were ultimately no fatalities. Less than a month later, the refinery announced it would shut down operations and it filed for bankruptcy. This caused a loss of more than a thousand jobs, not to mention contractors, and there was an immediate nationwide spike in the price of gasoline and in gasoline futures. This closure had reduced the country's refining capacity by about 2%. The old refinery land has been rebranded It's now the Bellwether District. It's being repurposed as a state-of-the-art e-commerce, life science, and logistics campus. The term Bellwether dates to the 15th century. It refers to the practice of placing a bell around the neck of the lead weather, the male sheep. A shepherd could then note the movements of the animals by hearing the bell even when the flock was not in sight. Nowadays, a bellwether is a leader or an indicator of trends. You can find more at their website, thebellweatherdistrict.com. But the days of the refinery are gone. This is one of those months when I only have two parts to the podcast for you. The long part is coming up. If you like the podcast, please leave a review, especially at Apple Podcast. Uh, I'm up to almost 40 five-star ratings at Apple, and I really appreciate that. You can get in touch with me also, joe at joelex.net. I'm more than happy to listen to your questions and queries about the podcast or Laurel Hill Cemetery. November at the cemeteries is still a busy month before the hard, cold winter sets in. There is probably no better place to spend a couple of hours than learning about our occupants from one of our excellent volunteer tour guides. Don't forget, you can always arrange a private tour for your family or group. You could even request me as your guide if you want to. Go to laurelhillphl.com slash plan hyphen you hyphen visit slash tours for details. If you're looking for a speaker for your organization, you can even get one of our certified guides, including me, to give a live talk about the cemeteries and their occupants. And of course, with the winter holidays on the horizon, consider buying friends or family a membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill. Membership gets you discounts on all the tours, special members-only events, discounts in the gift shop, and lots more. What are the tours coming up? 
There is a wonderful tour coming up on Saturday, November 4th at 1 p.m. It's called Mesmerizing Monuments of Laurel Hill East. Soaring obelisks, imposing mausoleums, or perhaps mausolea if you prefer. Lifelike sculptures are all featured in this tour. Jerry McCormick is your guide. Fall Foliage Tour at Laurel Hill West is on Sunday, November 5th at 1 p.m. Fall Arboretum Tour, led by our arborist, Aaron Greenberg. Those are always fun. Virtual Sacred Spaces and Storied Places on Wednesday, November 8th. You don't even have to leave the comfort of your home. I am going to be your host for that one, and I need to get cracking on that. I've only got part of that one done. But that's coming up, a virtual tour of West on November 8th at 6.30 p.m. It's free. It's free. Just sign up for it. We'll send you the link. Now, a members-only event is on November 9th. It's called Inside the Archives of Laurel Hill. And once a year, the folks at the archives, the folks at the gatehouse, pull little treasures out of the archive, make them available for members who are interested to inspect. It's really a treat. That's one of the advantages of membership. Another of our annual events, we do this every year on or about November 10th. This year it's on a Friday. That is the anniversary of the Marine Corps, which was founded here in Philadelphia. At 11 a.m., we meet at the tomb of General Jacob Zylan, the first Marine Corps general. And then one of our military experts, Andy Wasky, will give a brief tour of some little-known military bigwigs near the Zylan Monument. It's worth going to this just to see the Marines show up in their dress uniforms. There's a Hot Spots tour, Saturday, November 11th, 10 a.m. at East. That's Pat Rose. Brand new tour that Jackie Mann is bringing this year. It's called Stagecoaches and Omnibuses, Victorian Transport. I'm really curious to see what she comes up with on that. That's going to be Saturday, November 18th from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m. at East. There is a tour that is outside the cemetery on Saturday, November 18th at 11 a.m., that is the Pocket of Paradise Fall Walking Tour. That is with our cooperation, but that is by another organization. It's free, but there is an RSVP required. Do a walking tour of the surrounding neighborhood. Really interesting. Sunday, November 19th, Joan Zubris does her Philanthropist of Laurel Hill East Tour, Giving Back. That is at 1 p.m. There's a Hotspots tour on November 24th at 10 a.m. That is Tom and Patty Stringer. There's a Sacred Spaces and Storied Places tour on Saturday, the 25th at 10 a.m. That's at West, and Linda Blowney will be giving that one. Then, the last tour for November, Auld Lang Syne, Scots of Laurel Hill East. That is on Sunday, November 26th at 10 a.m., Honor St. Andrew's Day by meeting our Scottish residents. Peter Howell will be the tour guide for that. Finally, in events, there is the Boneyard Bookworms, Thursday, November 30th, from 6 until 7.30 p.m. Laurel Hills Book Club is open to all. So go ahead and get online and read the book and have fun at the book club. Okay, we're getting to the second half of the podcast now. 
In the second act of the musical Hamilton, Aaron Burr and the title character have a musical conversation about General Hugh Mercer. Ah, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Burr. Sir. Did you hear the news about good old General Mercer? No. You know Claremont Street? Yeah. They renamed it after him. The Mercer Legacy is secure. Sure. And all he had to do was die. Yeah, that's a lot less work. We ought to give it a try. <laughs> now, how you gonna get your debt plan through? I guess I'm gonna finally have to listen to you. Really? Talk less. Mr. Burser was right about General Mercer and his legacy. Across the United States, there are seven states that have a Mercer County, including Pennsylvania. It's up in the oil boom territory in the northwest, just adjacent to Crawford County. It was created in 1800. The county seat is also named Mercer. That was founded in 1803. Plus, there's a Mercersburg in Franklin County near the Mason-Dixon line just seven and a half miles north of Maryland. There is also a Mercerville in Hamilton Township in Mercer County in the middle of New Jersey. If you've visited Laurel Hill East, you have probably seen Hugh Mercer's monument and grave. After his death at the Battle of Princeton in 1777, he was initially interred at Christ Church on 2nd Street, but his remains were reburied at Laurel Hill East in 1840. And yes, Hugh Mercer will eventually get his own podcast. One of the first settlers in what was to become Mercer, Pennsylvania, was John Pugh, P-E-W. He moved to the region from Virginia in 1797 with his wife, the former Elizabeth Vaughn, and four children. Eleven more children were born to them in Mercer. Two of them died in infancy. The Pew Patriarchs had arrived in the New World in the mid-17th century and had slowly migrated west as new opportunities and territory became available. The Pews were a deeply religious family. Their children had biblical names, John, William, Mary, Hannah, David, Joseph, James, and so on. During the War of 1812, the two eldest Pew boys, Samuel and Abraham, saw active duty in the Mercer Light Brigade and Mercer Blue. With 94 other men, they marched down to Pittsburgh, and they joined General Crook's brigade. Another brother, John, who was born in 1800, was too young to march with his older brothers. In 1823, he settled on a spread two miles south of Mercer, and he married Nancy Glenn, 1804 to 1877, and they raised their ten children together. The youngest son was Joseph Newton Pugh, born on 25 July 1848, when his father was 48 and his mother was 44. The Pews were strong abolitionists, and their Mercer farm was a stop on the Underground Railroad as enslaved African Americans made their way north to Canada. The Pew children were not home educated. From the time they were old enough, they walked two miles each way to and from school in Mercer every day. Starting in 1834, Pennsylvania had a public school system that was universal and open to all. The Commonwealth required local districts to tax themselves for public education that was to teach a common language and the values of U.S. education. Young Newton, as he was called, did so well in school 
that at 18 he was asked to teach in a one-room school in the tiny community of London, Pennsylvania. That's a few miles south of Mercer. The money that he earned and saved as a teacher from 1866 to 1869 permitted him to attend Edinburgh, Pennsylvania Normal School for one year. When Newton Pugh turned 22, he opened a real estate business in Mercer. But there wasn't a lot of activity in this small town of fewer than 1,500 people. But real estate was booming in the next county north, Crawford, where, as I said in the first part of the podcast, oil had been discovered in 1859 at Titusville. Newton opened a real estate office there, adding the services of insurance and loans. And in just a few years, he had amassed a personal fortune of nearly $40,000. That is now worth about three quarters of a million dollars. In 1874, he won the hand of Mary Catherine Anderson, whose father, George K. Anderson, was a prominent Titusville banker who owned oil property in the area. The same year that his daughter married Newton Pugh, Anderson served as a Republican state senator for a two-year term. Although more millionaires were being made in northwest Pennsylvania at this time than any other spot on earth, there were risks involved. There was no guarantee. By the end of 1875, Anderson had become insolvent. He'd invested his fortune in speculative oil properties and some shaky bank deals. The next year, Newton also lost money on speculative investments in oil. He partnered with another oil producer, Edward Octavius Emerson, a cousin of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And they launched a natural gas business in Bradford, Pennsylvania, which is in McKean County. That actually shares a border with New York State. Bradford was soon bustling with speculators because of more oil discoveries. And gas was cheaper than coal to heat the boilers of drilling rigs and pumping oil wells. Pugh and Emerson also supplied gas for heat and light to residents of Bradford, then expanded their business to Olean in New York State, 30 miles to the north. In 1878, a gas well blew out and caught fire in nearby Murraysville, Pennsylvania. The flames from this so-called haymaker well, named for its owners, could be seen from nearly 10 miles away and the roar of the escaping gas was said to be deafening. The well produced an estimated 30 million cubic feet of natural gas daily. While burning, though, the well had little value, and the Haymaker brothers sold it to some investors in Chicago for about $20,000. It took five years to extinguish the fire, and then the Haymaker brothers sold this same well to Newton and his partner Emerson. The brothers then tried to return the deposit to the Chicago group, which refused to relinquish their ownership. The Chicago group sent a group of 50 men armed with rifles and bayonets to Murraysville to seize the Haymaker well. On 28 November 1883, the Haymaker brothers and 10 other local men, no doubt supported by Pugh and Emerson, confronted the Chicagoans. Obadiah Haymaker was bayoneted four times and shot once. He died while being carried back to his house. Michael Haymaker escaped death when the gun pointed at him by the leader of the Chicago group, 
Milton Weston misfired. Weston was tried and sentenced to prison as an accessory to murder, while Newton and Emerson took over the well, and they named it Penn Fuel Company. In 1882, Joseph Newton Pugh had arrived in Pittsburgh, a city of 235,000 people which did not yet know that it needed gas. After acquiring the Haymaker well, the Penn Fuel Company built gas pipelines into the city and convinced the occupants to give it a try. And this made Pittsburgh the first major city in the United States to be supplied with natural gas for home and industrial use. Newton went to Andrew Carnegie, and he offered to supply his iron mills with gas for power, free of charge. When Carnegie realized the economic advantage of gas over coal, he consented to take it, but he proudly told Pugh, I'll pay for it. After two years of commuting between Pittsburgh and Bradford, the rest of the family came to the big city, where the children now attended private schools. In 1886, Newton, Emerson, and a third partner named Philip Pisano formed the People's Natural Gas Company. Harper's New Monthly Magazine in 1886 reported that natural gas in Pittsburgh, quote, already displaces over 10,000 tons of coal daily. Thus the character of that city will be completely transformed and it will no longer be properly described as the dirtiest city in America, end quote. In 1890, Newton Pugh and his partner formed the Sun Oil Company of Ohio. Sun Oil diversified quickly. It was active in the production and distribution of oil as well as processing and marketing refined products. On 2 July 1890, the 51st Congress of the United States passed the Sherman Antitrust Act, which took away the monopoly of John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company and opened the mining and refining industries to competition. In 1895, a former student of Newton's from Mercer took over the small Presbyterian College, which had been founded in 1876. Grove City College, in the city of the same name, also in Mercer County. Newton was elected president of the Board of Trustees and insisted that his son, J. Howard Pugh, and nephew, John Glenn Pugh, be named to the board. Grove City became Newton's main philanthropy, and the Pugh family has been involved in the college since then. Grove City College is a Christian non-denominational college with 2,400 undergraduates, which the college attempts to keep 50% each male and female. The college has long been affiliated with conservative and libertarian think tanks and consistently ranks in the top 10 United States institutions of higher learning, which are unfriendliest to the LGBTQ community. In 1899, Pugh sold his interest in the gas company to Standard Oil, and he bought out his partners in the oil business. Sun Oil was now J. Newton Pugh, his family members, and other people selected by him. On 10 January 1901, a well at Spindletop in Beaumont, Texas came in, and the gusher blew for nine days at an estimated 100,000 barrels of crude per day. The companies Gulf Oil and Texaco were quickly formed to take advantage of the new discovery. While Pew incorporated the Sun Company, New Jersey, 
obtained leases for crude and refining in Texas, arranged for tank ships to transport crude to the East Coast, and constructed a new refinery in Marcus Hook, just a few miles downriver from Philadelphia and the Point Breeze refinery. Sun would be the first of seven refineries in the town. They were at a site called Lindenthorpe Park, which had been a popular resort for Philadelphians. There was a, a beach, a dancing pavilion, picnic grounds, and a half-mile racetrack. By late June of 1901, there were 13 gushers on Spindletop, and the United States oil boom began in earnest. In 1904, Newton and his family moved from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia to the Biddle House on Walnut Street. And a year later, Joseph Newton bought a beautiful house in a 16-acre estate on Morris Avenue in Bryn Mawr. He named it Glenmead in honor of his mother, Nancy Glenn. William Lightfoot Price was architect for the new house, which became the scene of lively social activities, especially for the two sisters, 21-year-old Ethel and 16-year-old Mabel. In fact, Newton's son Howard met his wife, Helen Thompson, at one of these soirees, and the couple stayed together for 57 years. Howard and Helen were unable to have children of their own, so they adopted three, Roberta, George, and Frances. Newton's family members were getting involved in the business. And I warn you, this can all be very confusing because of name similarities. Three sons, Arthur, James Howard, who went as J. Howard Pugh, and Joseph Newton Jr., who went as Joe Pugh, had been groomed to take over Sun Oil, as were two nephews, sons of Newton's older brother, Thomas Pugh. Nephew James Edgar Pugh, known as J. Edgar, began working at his uncle's gas works when he was 16 years old. And in 1896, he took charge of sales and marketing at Sun's Toledo refinery. Robert C. Pugh, another son of Thomas, headed to Spindletop. But he returned within a month after witnessing the chaos as the population of Beaumont multiplied five times and land prices skyrocketed to almost $1 million per acre nearest the well. J. Edgar Pugh, who came to be known as the Pistol Packin' Pugh from Pennsylvania, headed to Texas, and he thrived. In addition to Thomas, Newton had two other older brothers, James, 1838 to 1862, who was killed at the Battle of Fredericksburg, and John Glenn Pugh, 1835 to 1922, who was shot in the abdomen in the closing days of the Civil War, but he lived on for an additional 57 years. Newton's oldest son, Arthur, graduated from Princeton in 1896. He worked with his father on expanding the market for Sun's lubricating oils. He was named vice president of the Sun Company of New Jersey at its formation. He also served as president of the Powhatan Coal Company, vice president of the Linden Oil Company and the O'Connell Oil Company, and secretary treasurer of the Beaver Valley Railroad Company. But Arthur retired in 1912 due to illness, and he died just a few years later of acute kidney failure and convulsions. He was only 40 years old. His son, Arthur Jr., entered the business soon after. The second son, J. Howard, received a degree from Grove City College, 
the institution his father had helped build and finance when he was 18 years old. A year later, in 1901, he dropped out of his classes at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and joined Sun Oil at the Marcus Hook Refinery. He was instrumental in developing the Sun Red Line of lubricants in 1901 and the asphalt hydroline in 1903. In 1906, he was named vice president of the Sun Oil Company. He was 28 years old. And four years later, he became manager at Marcus Hook. By 1910, there were more than 100 products that carried Sun's trade name. Howard succeeded his father as president of Sun in 1912, a position that he was to hold for the next 35 years. He was 30 years old when he took over the whole Sun empire. During the Great War, he established the Sun Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company. He helped to found the American Petroleum Institute in 1919, and he served on the board of the National Association of Manufacturers. In 1912, within months of the dissolution of the Standard Oil monopoly, Joseph Newton Pugh Sr. died at his desk of an apparent heart attack. Within two weeks, the Pugh family elected 30-year-old J. Howard as president and Joseph Newton Jr. as vice president. Newton's former partner, E.O. Emerson, had died only three months before and was buried at Titusville, where he had served as mayor from 1890. To 1893. In 1915, a year after the Great War started, but before the United States got involved, Howard Pugh visited Germany and was impressed by the number of airplanes and ships they had amassed. Germany already had 48 submarines in service or under construction. And when he returned, he wisely decided to start a shipyard. He knew that the United States would eventually be drawn into the war. In May 1916, the Sun Shipbuilding Company was formed, and a $5 million project began to turn 50 acres of skunk cabbage fields into five slipways along the riverfront site of the east end of Chester, Pennsylvania. Chester is located between the company's Philadelphia headquarters and the Marcus Hook refinery. Sun ships built many ships for the Allies, including six oil tankers and three minesweepers. Sun even built two East End neighborhoods for its employees. They're still there, Sun Village and Sun Hill. The Pews tapped another cousin, John Glenn Pew, as boss at the shipyard. John, the twin brother of J. Edgar Pistolpack and Pew, was born in 1870. When he was 11 years old, his father Thomas, J. Newton's older brother, who was in the lumber business, was killed by a falling tree. The shipyard that John managed had 16,000 employees during the Great War. They spoke 25 different languages, and courses in English were offered in the evening to anyone who wished to learn the language. Sun came out of the war with its primary interest in lubricating and industrial oils. After the Great War, Sun shipbuilding expanded in size and capacity, and during the 1920s, 95 vessels were built at Sun. Sun also constructed the first all-welded ocean-going vessel, the White Flash. Up until this time, the steel plates in a cargo ship 
were held together with rivets, about 1.3 million rivets per ship. This was very labor-intensive and it added weight to the vessel. Other shipbuilders saw their success and they soon adopted the new method of welding. It was also in 1920 that Sun Oil opened its first service station in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. The company's charter was amended to change its name to Sun Oil Company in 1922. On 12 November 1925, the company went public and Sun Oil stock appeared for the first time on Wall Street's big board. Meanwhile, their refining capacity expanded rapidly from 3,200 barrels a day in 1920 to nearly 50,000 barrels per day by 1928. It was during the Depression in 1934 that Howard purchased and reorganized the Chilton Company, a publisher of several national magazines. Howard was an early sponsor and director of Christianity Today from its founding by Billy Graham in 1956 until his death. During the Depression, Sun avoided layoffs of their employees by offering a two-day work week. At a time when jobs were scarce, Sun ship employees could still support their families, working only two days a week. Now, by the time World War II started for the United States in 1941, Sun was among the country's five largest shipyards. They had eight slipways. During the war, it added 20 more slipways, and Sun ship became the country's largest shipyard. It extended more than one and a half miles of riverfront in Chester. At its peak during the war, the company employed more than 35,000 workers at four shipyards and was the largest private sector employer of African Americans in the country. Plus, it employed 2,800 women in the shipyard. Now, controversially, some segregated many of the black workers to yard number four. This decision posed a real quandary for African Americans. Should they postpone full integration for the sake of economic improvement, or should they pass up the opportunity to improve their vocational experience and economic condition for the ultimate goal of total equality in a fully integrated society? Going deeply into this problem is beyond the scope of this podcast. I have included a reference in the bibliography that examines this dilemma very, very closely. Sun Shipbuilding built 281 T-2 tankers during World War II. That's about 40% of the U.S. wartime total, and more than the entire British Empire was able to construct in the same period. The T-2 had a capacity of 141,000 barrels, and it was used to transport oil at all stages, crude, fuel oil, diesel oil, and gasoline and it could move at about 14.5 knots per hour, just over 16 miles per hour. But German submarines struck terrible blows to Allied ships and sank more than 3 million tons of tankers in 1942 alone. Sun and other shipbuilders kept up and replaced the losses. About 18,500 Sun ship employees served in the U.S. Armed Forces during the war, and 173 died in service to their country. In addition to tankers, Sun built hospital ships, cargo ships, 
escort carriers for the United States Maritime Commission. And it repaired 1,200 ships at its dry dock. John Glenn Pugh Jr., son of the director, had an uncanny ability to look at a ship for a day or two and then come up with an estimate for its repair and be within 1% of the ultimate cost of that repair. John Glenn Pugh Sr. died in 1954. He's interred at Arlington Cemetery in Drexel Hill along with his wife, Eva Alice Weitzel Pugh, 1872-1958. Sun Shipbuilding was sold to Pennsylvania Shipbuilding in 1982, and that closed in 1989. In 2006, a casino opened on the site, which since May 2012 has been in operation as Harris Philadelphia. That's the old Sun Shipyard. During J. Howard Pugh's 35 years as president of Sun Oil Company, the enterprise grew 40-fold. That's 4-0. In 1947, he stepped down when he reached the age of 65, and he handed the reins over to the company's 37-year-old comptroller, Robert G. Dunlop, who served for 23 years. Dunlop, who died in 1995, is also interred in the Franconia section, of Laurel Hill West Cemetery. Howard lived for 24 years after he retired, and he spent many of those years giving away his money. When he died on 27 November 1971, his personal fortune was estimated to be $400 million. His good friend Billy Graham delivered the eulogy. Joseph Newton Pugh Jr., who went by Joe, was the youngest son. He graduated from Cornell in 1908. As an undergraduate, Joe was captain of the track team, and he won the IC4A championship in the hammer throw. He became vice president of Sun in 1912, when he was 26, and he became chairman of the board in 1947. In 1916, he married Alberta C. Hensel, and they had five children. He assisted in the founding of Sun Shipbuilding, and was general manager of the Linden Oil Company and vice president of the O'Connell Oil Company. Joe was the visionary of the company. He was the one behind the effort to develop gasoline without tetraethyl lead, and he created the higher-octane Blue Sunoco. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president in 1932, he started to roll out his plans for a new deal which included regulating the stock market and banking industry, pouring millions of dollars into work relief programs, social security, and guaranteeing workers the right to unionize and collective bargaining. FDR also promised to cut oil production and fix or freeze prices as part of the National Recovery Act Petroleum Code. Because of this, Pennsylvania was one of only six states who voted for the incumbent Herbert Hoover, and they supplied 36 of the 57 electoral votes that he received. More than half of the electoral votes for Hoover came from Pennsylvania. This was due a lot to the efforts of Howard and Joe Pugh. Howard said, the hand of government on business is the cold, clammy hand of death, and it must eventually destroy everything it touches. After surviving an assassination attempt in Miami in February, 
Roosevelt took office on 4 March 1933. By June of 1933, there was already a plot being developed to overthrow the U.S. government. This so-called business plot involved the use of the 500,000 bonus army from the Great War to encircle Washington and force Roosevelt to either repeal New Deal legislation or abdicate. The plot was spoiled by retired Major General Smedley Butler of the U.S. Marine Corps, who said he had been approached about becoming dictator. Butler was born and raised in Westchester, Pennsylvania. He served as Director of Public Safety for Philadelphia in 1924-25. Butler said he had been recruited by representatives of the American Legion to organize the military for the coup. The leader of the American Legion was chastised when he called for the end of non-Aryan pollution of American stock and an end to non-Anglo-Saxon immigration as a way of controlling anarchist infiltration. The American Liberty League formed in 1934. Its members were primarily wealthy business elites and prominent political figures. They were for the most part conservatives and very much opposed to Roosevelt's New Deal. The League named a National Executive Committee of 25 and a National Advisory Council of about 200. Those named include the Pews of Sun Oil Company, along with the Morgans, the DuPonts, the Harrimans, the Mellons, the Rockefellers, and other wealthy individuals. Howard Pugh donated $20,000 and served on the Executive Committee of the Advisory Council. The Pugh family also funded the Sentinels of the Republic and the Crusaders, groups which labeled the New Deal Jewish Communism. The Sentinels worked against the New Deal and expansion of the federal government in general. When Smedley Butler testified before Congress in 1934, many refused to believe him, and the people he was pointing his finger at denied everything. But in the 1934 elections, Democrats took control of nearly every political office in Pennsylvania, House, Senate, and the governor's office. Howard and Joe Pugh dug in their heels even further to resist the New Deal. Joe Pugh was on the cover of Time magazine, 6 May 1940. Here's what it said about him. One of the men who hated FDR the most was Joseph Newton Pugh Jr., known as Joe Pugh, or alternatively as Boss Pugh, or simply referred to as Republican Pugh. He put his convictions and dollars to work. He became Pennsylvania's GOP boss by the simple but tremendous expedient of putting up the money. Kind of sounds like Boyce Penrose, doesn't it? Pugh took control of the Republican Party in Pennsylvania, and he helped fund a national public relations campaign against Roosevelt before the 1936 election. He handpicked the GOP party chairman. He hired a propagandist on a three-year contract at $20,000 a year. Then he bought the Farm Journal. It was a magazine with a circulation of about a million. And then he later merged it with The Farmer's Wife. These became a vehicle to get his Republican message across to people around the country. Pew's money and influence paid off. 
And although Roosevelt was re-elected by a massive margin in 1936, he had 523 electoral votes compared to eight for Republican Alf Landon. In 1938, Pennsylvania Republicans regained the governor's seat, both houses of the state legislature, a majority of the state congressional seats, and they now controlled both seats in the U.S. Senate. The Pews seemed to lose interest in politics as war started in Europe, but Roosevelt never forgot or forgave. In 1939, there was a competition to build the next bomber for the U.S. Army Air Corps. A Texas design engineer, Vincent J. Bernelli, easily won with his radical flying fuselage design. His A-1 fighter bomber design won an Army Air Corps competition over Boeing, Douglas, and Lockheed designs and gained the support of Air Corps General Henry Hap Arnold. Bernelli's craft carried 2,000 pounds more bombs, it used 60% less fuel, and it required a runway that was only 50% as long as other planes for both takeoff and landing. Plus, it was cheaper to build. The Army Air Corps stated, it is essential in the interest of national defense that this Bernelli procurement be authorized. Bernelli was invited to the White House for the final signing of the contract. During conversation, FDR casually said, we understand you have the best airplane of the lot, and we're going to build a lot of them. So I guess you're going to need some money. Bernelli courteously replied that this wouldn't be necessary. Oh, Mr. Arthur Pugh of Sun Oil is prepared to put up whatever we need. Arthur in this case with Arthur Pugh Jr. Roosevelt went into a rage and he threw his pen across the room and had Bernelli and his entire team ejected from the Oval Office. So when the United States entered the war and the emphasis was placed on aircraft production, it was for any plane that was not a Bernelli. The cheaper, more efficient plane was never built. Some people feel this venomous relationship between FDR and the Pews may have cost the country thousands of lives and billions of dollars. An internal Sun Oil review found in 1943 that Sun's lack of goodwill with the military retarded the wartime use of its catalytic cracking process, which was the only one available in the late 1930s and early 1940s. This sun cracking process at the refinery made a higher quality fuel at a lower cost. After Roosevelt's death in 1944, sun shipbuilding and sun oil both did a booming business with the U.S. government. Thanks to lucrative federal contracts for sun oil's fuel, the company would blend more than a billion gallons of aviation fuel for the armed forces. Annual income rose accordingly from $131.5 million in 1939 to $600.8 million in 1944, more than a fourfold increase. And Sun Oil continued to expand. In 1957, Sun Oil made its first major foreign oil strike in Venezuela. Sun Oil produced about 1 billion barrels of oil until 1975, when Venezuela nationalized the industry. 
Now, Venezuela has the world's largest proven oil reserves at an estimated 304 billion barrels. That's 18% of global reserves as of 2020. In 1947, J. Howard Pugh resigned as president, but stayed on as a director, while his brother Joe took over control of the company. Joe soon retired from politics to become chairman of the board of Sun Oil until his death in 1963. Go back a few years. 1948, Joe Pugh with his brother and two sisters, Mary Ethel Pugh, who never married, and Mabel Anderson Pugh, who had married businessman Hjalmar W. Myron, founded the Pugh Charitable Trust, an independent, non-profit, non-governmental organization. Honoring their parents' religious conviction that good work should be done quietly, the original Pew Memorial Foundation was a grant-making organization that made its donations anonymously. The foundation became the Pew Memorial Trust in 1956. Between 1957 and 1979, six other trusts were created, representing the personal and complementary philanthropic interests of the four Pew siblings. As of 2020, assets held by the seven trusts totaled $6 billion. Early priorities of the Pew Memorial Trust included cancer research, the American Red Cross, and a pioneering project to assist historically black colleges and universities. But it also continued to support conservative organizations like the John Birch Society, the aforementioned American Liberty League, and the American Enterprise Institute. The Pew Trust, with other groups, backed an effort to create marine protected areas in the Pacific Ocean near the Mariana Islands. The protected area was officially designated in January 2009. It includes the Mariana Trench, the deepest ocean canyon in the world. Another marine protected area financed by the Pews and others is the Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument. This was protected by President Bush in 2006 and expanded by President Obama in 2016. According to the 2019 IRS form filed by Pew Charitable Trusts, the organization distributed 142,114,349 in grants that year. Controversially, the Pews also supported the relocation of the famed Barnes Foundation from its longtime home in Lower Marion to Center City along the Benjamin Franklin Parkway in 2012. For more information about their involvement, there is a readily available 2009 documentary film called The Art of the Steel. But critics of the film complain that it is very one-sided. It lacks objectivity and perspective. And if you have not visited the new Barnes Foundation, it is almost completely identical to what used to be in Lower Marion. The Pew Research Center was established in 2004. It is a nonpartisan American think tank based in Washington, D.C. It does not make policy decisions. It provides information on social issues, public opinion, and demographic trends shaping the United States and the world. It conducts public opinion polling, demographic research, and panel-based surveys. 
In 2005, the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage was established. It makes grants in two areas, performance and exhibitions and public interpretation. It also awards grants to individual artists through Pew Fellowships. Since 1989, the center has awarded more than $153 million to artists and art organizations in the southeastern Pennsylvania region. Every year, it awards up to 12 unrestricted grants of $75,000 each to local artists. During its existence, it has awarded more than $182 million through 1,949 grants and 400 fellowships. In September of 2023, the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage awarded 40 grants and fellowships totaling $9 million. The diverse recipients include the Woodmere Art Museum in Chestnut Hill, the Philadelphia Theater Group, the Independent Seaport Museum, the William Way LGBT Community Center, Theater Horizon, and the Ars Nova Workshop. Disclosure, Ars Nova is now located at Solar Myth on South Broad Street. That's the old home of the Booten Saddle Bar. And last year, I donated a couple of thousand jazz vinyl LPs from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s to Solar Myth. They make up the bulk of the music played in the vinyl bar during the day when they don't have live music. When I was at the Mutter Museum College of Physicians recently for a talk, I saw the Pew Charitable Trust name on the Wall of Honor, just inside the front door. When I go to the theater, I will often see that Pew has made generous donation to the company which is presenting the show. The Pew imprint is scattered all over the city. At Laurel Hill West, the Pew family has one of the largest mausoleums. It is in the Franconia section, not far from the front gate and the funeral home. Don't bother to look for the family name over the door, or if you do, you're not going to see anything. It's instead on what you would call the front porch, just the three letters, P-E-W. There are also four massive urns beside the steps leaning up to the door. In death, as in life, the pews are still together. By my count, there are 17 people in the mausoleum including Patriarch Joseph Newton Pugh and his wife, Mary Catherine Anderson Pugh, whose name is on the property deed. They have a place of honor on the back wall of the mausoleum. It's under the stained glass angel. All five Pugh second-generation children are also interred there. There are two stacks of four crypts each on either side wall. In other words, 16 possible crypts. Oldest son, Arthur Edmund Pugh, who died at 40, and his wife, Helen Daisy Crocker Pugh, are on the right side. Daisy outlived Arthur by 28 years. Their oldest son, Arthur Edmund Pugh Jr., the man willing to financially back Bernelli, was initially buried with them. He was reinterred to yet another Franconia lot, number 393. It's just a short distance from his parents and aunts and uncles. Son number two, John Howard Pugh, and his wife, Helen Jennings Thompson Pugh, are on the left. Howard outlived his wife by eight years. He died in 1971. Daughter number one, Mary Ethel Pugh, as I mentioned before, never married. She lived from 1884 to 1979. She was an active and generous philanthropist. She is on the left. 
Joseph Newton Pugh Jr. and his wife, Alberta Caven Hensel Pugh, are also on the left. Joe Pugh died in 1963. It made headlines all over the country, and they all talked about his involvement and leadership in the Republican Party. He was Mr. Republican. They had five children, including Joseph Newton Pugh III, who died in 2011. He is interred with his wife, Doris Myers Pugh, 1922 to 2006. They are on the right side. And Mary Caven Pugh Benson, who died in 1964 from internal bleeding, is on the left. Alberta outlived Joe by 25 years. The youngest daughter, Mabel Anderson Pugh, married Hjalmar Alaric W. Myron and had two children. Their daughter, Mary Ethel, died in 1940 at age 15. She is in a crypt on the right. Mabel died in 1972. Hjalmar in 1970. They are also on the right. Arthur's other son, Walter Crocker Pugh, is not in the mausoleum. But Walter Crocker Pugh Jr., who married a gas station attendant from a local Sunoco station, is interred on the right side. Walter Jr. died at age 31 of carbon monoxide poisoning in 1964. His widow, Sophie Boychuk Pugh, daughter of Russian immigrants, lived from 1919 to 1992. She is interred in the South Lawn section of Laurel Hill West. Finally, cousin James Edgar Pistol Packin Pugh is in a lot next door to the Big Mausoleum. The Big Mausoleum is Franconia 4. J. Edgar is in Franconia III with his wife, Martha Elizabeth Ling Pugh. They both died in 1946. As you have heard, few families have left their mark on Philadelphia like the Pugh family. Their generosity is one of the things that continues to make Philadelphia such a wonderful place to experience. edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, I will tell you of a pioneer in surgery and education. Isidore S. Rabdin got his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School in 1918. He was the fourth generation of Rabdin physicians. He participated in and oversaw much groundbreaking surgical research. He joined the military. He became a major general. 
When President Eisenhower developed a bowel obstruction, it was Ravdin who was called to do the surgery, and he and Eisenhower remained lifelong friends. His legacy is huge, and there is a Ravdin Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. Listen for his story in mid-November, on or about the 15th. The December episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will be something new. I'm going to see if this works. It's called Murder Most Foul. An astonishing number of our residents made a violent end at the hand of others. When you pour over the newspaper articles during these days of yellow journalism, there are dozens of stories about shootings, stabbings, poisonings, and other ways to end the life of a fellow human being. After a brief summary of the meaning of yellow journalism, I will spend most of the podcast simply reading you articles from the newspapers. Some of these articles about our homicide victims are absolutely astonishing. I've not done anything like this before. I want to try it and see how it works out. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. There's an app you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood. There's parking at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation for West, take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge. You are leaving Philadelphia County. You are then in Montgomery County. Come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. There are audios for self-guided tours of Laurel Hill West. I have recorded two of them. Each is about 40 to 45 minutes. And it will tell you about people who are buried on both sides of the road, walking from the Writers Ferry entrance and then walking back to the Writers Ferry entrance. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are very soon only going to be open until 5 p.m. They will open at 7 a.m., but with the time change, we're going to go back to a 5 p.m. closing. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, nature buffs, skateboarders, bird watchers. We welcome everybody. Just be nice. That's really the big rule is be nice. And we do welcome strollers, as I keep saying, both the two-footed and the four-wheel variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West have a full schedule of historic tours. Find out more at laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. And the woman who does my publicity says we're on TikTok also. I haven't stumbled on TikTok yet. I'll maybe get there eventually. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill. You'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits. They may be cemeteries. They're a couple of the liveliest spots in town. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, 
and biographical bites from Bala Laurel Hill West stories are researched, written, narrated, and very amateurishly produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University. You can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. Remember to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around if you want to hear the references that I used for this podcast. So until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. As far as references... I think the biggest help was an article called Pennsylvania's Petroleum Industry. The author is Ernest C. Miller. It was in Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, July 1982, volume 49, number 3, pages 201 to 217. Another useful article was Abundance, Dependence, and Trauma, at Philadelphia's Point Breeze Petroleum Refinery, a mirror on the history of Pennsylvania's oil industry. The author, Frederick L. Quivick, Q-U-I-V-I-K. This was a long article, and it was chock full of information. It was in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, volume 139, number 3, October 2015, pages 265 to 292. I told you about the Sun Shipyard segregating all of its African-American workers to shipyard number four, and I didn't really go into details on that. Somebody has done a detailed study of that. The title of the article is Pie in the Sky versus Meat and Potatoes, The Case of Sun Ships Yard number four. Author John M. McClarnon and the journal was the Journal of American Studies, April 2000, Volume 34, Number 1. Living in America, Recent and Contemporary Perspectives, pages 67 to 88. Fascinating article. It really is. It asks a lot of questions that still haven't been answered. As far as the pews, I got a lot of information from their website. I got a lot of information from different online sources. Um, obviously, if it's coming from the pews, it's not going to tell the bad things. You have to dig a little bit to find those things. There is an article called Political Machines and National Elections by Dayton David McKean. It's from the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, September 1948, pages 46 to 52. From the Chester Times, 1954. An article called John G. Pugh Sr. represented the highest type of citizenship, the obituary for John Glenn Pugh Sr. And uh, it's really a nice obituary. It gives a lot of personal information about John G. An article from 1971 in the New York Times, which is called The Shy Super Rich Behind Sun Oil. And it tries to give a fair look at the Pew dynasty, mentioning a couple of dozen Pews by name and explaining where they fit into the the big puzzle of uh, sun oil and sun shipbuilding and the rest of the offshoots. It also talks a lot about the philanthropic donations that are made. 
And then there are pamphlets that are actually put out by Pew. Uh, Pew at 75, the Pew Charitable Trusts. Uh, Pew at 75, that was released just in spring of this year. It has a history of the charitable trusts. Pictures of the four first-generation children on the cover. Then the life and times of Joseph Newton Pew, Sr., 1848 to 1912, is a booklet that was published by Pew also. I got a lot of information about the early Pew family from a book called Faith and Freedom, the Journal of a Great American, J. Howard Pew, that was published in 1975. The author, or the compiler actually, is Mary Senholtz, S-E-N-N-H-O-L-Z. And that is from Grove City College, Grove City, Pennsylvania, as I said before, 1975. Sunship Building and Dry Dock Company, 1916 to 1982, a short history. This was done by John Costello, Vice President and Historian, and David Cavanaugh with a K, President and Founder of the Sunship Historical Society. They're trying to digitize a lot of the information from Sunship at their website. And they have a nice general article that's only about, is it about five or six pages at all? But it gave me good background on Sun Shipyard. The website for that is sunship.org. And finally, an article called Strategic Philanthropy Pew's Approach to Matching Needs with Resources. This is published in Health Affairs. Volume 18, number 3, 1999. If you're interested in the way that the Pew philanthropy works, you might want to check this out. Pages 228 to 233. Okay, that's it. I hope to catch you on the next podcast, and maybe I'll see you at the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.